the old pilot's plain tales, the highest honour. I'm recording this on the 11th of November, a time when my mind turns to those who have fought for our freedom and particularly those who gave their lives in the skies during the Second World War. I've read many stories of bravery, but these two stand out. I guess we all have a natural fear of fire. I have had the experience of being badly burned, so I have a strong aversion, but despite that, I find the particular heroism it takes to tackle fire remarkable, and I commend these stories to you. James Ward was born in New Zealand in 1919, just after the end of the First World War. The little coastal town of Wanganui must have felt a long way from the troubles that were brewing in Europe as he grew up. He was trained as a teacher, and at the start of the Second World War, he enlisted in the Royal New Zealand Air Force. Jimmy was a shy and modest man, but was accepted for pilot training and trained at Thierry and Wigram until he qualified as a sergeant pilot. He sailed off to Britain in 1941 and started at No. 20 Operational Training Unit at Lossiemouth in Scotland, flying the Vickers Wellington bomber. Jimmy was charmed by the Scots, but of the climate, so different from sunny Wanganui, he wrote home saying to his family, Fog in the morning, sunshine for an hour, mist in the afternoon. Mother, oh mother, what a climate. Before long, Jimmy Ward was posted to No. 75 New Zealand Squadron as a second pilot serving on Wellingtons and flying operational missions. The New Zealand government had ordered 30 Wellingtons before the war, but when hostilities commenced they offered the aircraft to the Royal Air Force. The Air Ministry reformed No. 75 Squadron with the Kiwis as the nucleus. As an aside, the squadron number would be retained by the unit and returned to New Zealand with it after the war, the only squadron ever to be given this honour. The RAF would not use the number again. It was the 7th of July 1941 and Jimmy was on his sixth flight, peering through the astrodome of a Wellington bomber at the Zyder Zee, a sheet of silver some two and a half miles below them. Scrodonido Widowson, a Canadian, was at the controls, and with them were their crew, a radio operator, navigator and some gunners. Behind them lay Munster, where their bombs had fallen. It had been a fairly placid flight, the flak hadn't been that bad, and their job was nearly done for the night. But as they turned for home, a German ME-110 pilot had picked out their silhouette against the moonlit sky, and unseen was closing on them. Suddenly their world was lit up as tracer rounds whizzed past the nose and then the German's cannon shell smashed into the fuselage and the right wing as the Wellington shuddered. The Bombay doors gaped open when the hydraulic system failed. The radio was wrecked as was the aircraft intercom and smoke and fumes filled the aircraft. 
When the black shape of the Messerschmitt turned away, its long belly exposed, Box, the tail gunner, spotted it and squeezed off a long burst from his twin Browning three hundred three machine guns. He watched flecks of light sparkle on the German aircraft as he struck it, and the Messerschmitt rolled onto its back, beginning a leisurely spiral dive as black smoke poured from its wings. On board the Wellington, they were all looking with horror at a long tongue of bright flame that was spurting from a split fuel pipe beside the starboard engine. The licking flame cast a ruddy light into the cockpit and the skipper peered back to see what was going on. Realising how serious it was, he banked the Wellington round and pointed its nose parallel to the Dutch coast. Jimmy Ward clambered into the cockpit and leaned over the Canadian's shoulder. "'Tell the chaps to put their parachutes on. Prepare to jump for it,' Willison yelled over the engine's roar. "'Oh, and see if you can put that bloody fire out.' In the middle of the fuselage, the crew tore at the canvas covering, opening up a large hole. Through this, they emptied the contents of a fire extinguisher, and even threw the coffee from their flasks, but the liquid was caught by the fierce slipstream and carried aft before it could do any good. Widowson suggested that Jimmy might make a hole and lean out, but the lattice of the geodetic design was too strong to break. Looking out of the astrodome on top of the fuselage, Jimmy could clearly see the fire burning fiercely, and he told his mates that he was going to jettison the dome and climb out with an engine cover, which he would use to beat the flames out. There was an immediate argument, but Jimmy Ward was adamant. Well, at least take your parachute. No, I can't, came the reply. Too much wind resistance. Take the bloody thing, you fool, they replied. Oh, okay. They tied a rope from the dinghy around his waist, and as he squeezed out through the small hole, his breath was taken away by the howling gale that met him. Inch by inch he crawled out, hampered by his thick flying suit and parachute. The top half of his body was hanging out, and he could see the flames below him along the wing, six or seven feet away. When he was finally out and hanging onto the rim of the hatch, he started kicking at the fuselage to make footholds. His body was lifted savagely by the airflow and slammed back down again, but he persevered, making one hole after another. Inch by inch, he crawled towards the flames. Soon he was faced by not only the roaring airflow, but the buffeting of the propeller's slipstream as well. The wind tore at him, lifted him, and flung him back against the wing, but desperately he hung on. He began to feel the searing pain in his arms and legs as they took the terrible strain. He pulled at the flapping engine cover and plunged it into the gaping hole in the wing, pushing it towards the flames. He held it there until the strain on him became so much he had to pull his arm back. Immediately the wind whipped the cover to the edge of the hole and he had to push it back in again. Again the cover flapped out of the hole, but this time the screaming airflow won, and in a second it was gone into the black night. 
Jimmy was exhausted by his efforts and dazed from being thrashed against the wing, but although the flame was still there, it had moved and it wasn't spreading anymore. There was nothing more he could do. Wearily, he started to crawl back towards the hatch. It was only a few feet, but it felt like a mountain to climb as he found his footholds and he inched his way along the wing and back up the fuselage. His mates were keeping the rope taut and doing their best to help. With pain racking his arms, he reached the edge of the hatch and at last eager hands grabbed him and pulled him back to safety. In the long fuselage, the calmness and peace was a huge relief. While he rested, the skipper was staring at the fire. It was still a worry, but Jimmy's efforts had ripped the surrounding fabric away and there seemed little chance of it spreading. As they turned for home, the fire blazed up again, but then died back and completely disappeared. It had gone. The crew was safe. And before long, they were able to make an emergency landing at Newmarket. That summer, James Allen Ward was summoned to Number 10 Downing Street, the 300-year-old home of the Prime Minister Winston Churchill. The redoubtable Prime Minister regarded the shy, reluctant hero with some compassion and said, You must feel very humble and awkward in my presence. Yes, sir, managed Ward. Then you can imagine how humble and awkward I feel in yours, said Churchill. Later that year, this quiet school teacher from Wanganui was awarded the Victoria Cross by his king, George VI. The highest and most prestigious honour for valour that it was possible for him to receive. Struck by the jewellers, Hancocks of London from the metal of captured bronze cannon, it is a simple cross on a wine-red ribbon, marked by the crown of St. Edward, surmounted by a lion, with the uncomplicated motto, For Valour. Officially, it is only given for the most conspicuous bravery in the presence of the enemy. Jimmy Ward was to be only one of eight recipients of the Victoria Cross during the Second World War to come from the land of the Long White Cloud, and he was the first New Zealand airman to be honoured so. By the time Jimmy met the King, he was experienced enough to have his own aircraft and crew. A month or so later, he was on his 11th operational mission, his fifth as a captain, when he took off bound for Hamburg. As they approached their target, a searchlight, weaving around the sky, caught them in its beam. Flak exploded all around, making the big machine jump, and suddenly the Wellington was hit. Their bombs fell from the aircraft, but it was on fire, and this time the flames got a strong grip on the wing. As the wounded machine spiralled towards the earth, Jimmy ordered his crew to abandon their aircraft. Two parachuted to safety, but then the Wellington ploughed into a field and erupted into a massive fireball, killing Jimmy Ward and the others still on board. 
This second story takes us initially to Adamsville in Alabama. Henry Irwin was not a privileged man. He grew up fatherless and in poverty, but with a strong religious faith. He was called to active duty as an aviation cadet with the Army Air Force, but unable to succeed as a pilot, he became a radio operator and graduated in 1944 in time to join the 52nd Bombardment Squadron, which soon shipped out to the Asia-Pacific Theatre in early 1945. His unit flew the B-29 Superfortress, and Irwin, called Red by his crewmates, did well. In the spring of '45, his aircraft had participated in a series of unescorted bombing strikes against cities in the heart of Japan, for which he was awarded two air medals, given for acts of heroism or meritorious achievement. On the 12th of April, he was airborne again in the aircraft city of Los Angeles, a B-29 piloted by Captain George Simmerall. Their task was to make a low-level attack on a chemical plant about 120 miles north of Tokyo. It was their 11th combat mission. Along with his usual tasks, it was Owen's duty to mark their designated assembly area by dropping phosphorus smoke bombs through a chute in the aircraft's floor, a task made doubly difficult due to the presence of Japanese fighters and anti-aircraft fire. At the allocated moment, Red pulled the pin from a bomb and released the device into the delivery chute, but the fuse malfunctioned and the phosphorus ignited, blowing the canister back up the chute and into Red's face, blinding him, searing off an ear and obliterating his nose. Phosphorus, or willy peat as it's sometimes referred, reacts with air and burns at around 1300 degrees. It's an extremely effective smoke producer and has vicious anti-personnel properties, not only from the appalling burns it leaves, but due to the toxic nature of the chemical when absorbed into the body through the wounds it creates, and the effect of the smoke on the lungs. The aircraft was immediately filled with dense smoke. It was so dense that the pilot couldn't see out or even read his instruments. Red Irwin was aware of the terrible damage that phosphorus could do and feared that the chemical would burn through the floor and into the bomb bay below, igniting the weapons there. In a selfless act, of pure heroism, although completely blind, Red felt around for the burning bomb, and picking it up, he crawled around the gun turret that lay between him and the cockpit and headed forward. Although his face and arms were covered with burning phosphorus, he continued on until he found his path blocked by the navigator's folding table. He shifted the bomb into his right arm and held it against his body whilst he used his other hand to release the table catches and lower it. As he did so, the white-hot bomb burned through his arm and ribcage, through his flesh to the bone. Finally, like a walking torch, he stumbled into the cockpit and threw the bomb out of the pilot's open window before collapsing to the floor still completely aflame. 
As the smoke cleared, the pilot saw that they were heading for the water and he wrenched the B-29 out of the dive with only 300 feet to spare. Red Irwin was grievously wounded, but he remained conscious and despite the excruciating pain, he spoke only to ask if the rest of the crew were okay. His horrified colleagues extinguished the flames and tried to administer first aid, but whenever his burns were exposed to the air, the phosphorus started burning again. On landing back at Iwajima, the medical personnel who examined him expected Irwin to die. Because of this, the Army Air Force approved Irwin's award of the Medal of Honor in a matter of hours, so that a presentation could be made while he still lived. But there was no Medal of Honor available in the area. A plane was immediately dispatched to Hawaii, where an award was on display in a glass case. Unable to find anyone to open the case, his comrades broke into it, pocketed the medal, and flew back to Irwin's bedside for the presentation. Incredibly, Irwin survived, and he was evacuated to the States, where he endured 41 surgeries over 30 months, but they managed to restore his eyesight and the use of one arm. He received a disability discharge as a Master Sergeant in October 1947. For 37 years, Irwin served as a benefits counsellor at the Veterans Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. He passed away in 2002. Whilst he lay swathed in bandages in the hospital at Guam, General Hap Arnold wrote of him, I regard your act as one of the bravest in the records of this war. If you enjoy Plain Tales and would like to hear more of them, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show and you can find that at airlinepilotguy.com.